Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. We're in a series on the book of Acts called Power Today. And so if you're new today, you're in on the start of it or the near the beginning of it. We're still in Acts chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 14. So if you could turn there, Acts 1 verses 12 through 14. When you come to the book of Acts, God is going to take ordinary people. And when you read the book of Acts, he's going to do extraordinary things. That is always the heart of God, to do things that are beyond our ability, things that really display his power. But in order for you and I to move from the natural to the supernatural, we have to have supernatural power. That's why the key verse in the book of Acts is Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Jesus speaking says this, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. If you and I are going to know the power of God, then we have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. We have to have the Holy Spirit come upon us. We have to be clothed with the Holy Spirit. All of those are synonymous terms for God's empowering of his people in a way that moves us from the ordinary to the extraordinary, from the natural to the supernatural. This is always God's heart and his desire. He's going to take ordinary people. He's going to do amazing things in their life. And his heart to do that has never changed. There's nothing in the Bible that says he still doesn't want to do that today. In fact, the great need of the church today is we need something from heaven. We need more than programs or information or ingenuity can give us. We need power from heaven. We need power today. The good news is God wants us to have it. He wants to work in our life. He wants to empower us to do things that would move us beyond anything we could ask or imagine. Paul says in Ephesians 3 and verse 20, now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or think. God wants to do that in your life. God wants to do that in this church. We're watching it happen in a, in a new way, in a powerful way, as he's pouring out his spirit on people and literally hundreds of people have been filled with the Holy Spirit. To come to Acts chapter 1 and verse 12, we haven't yet hit the day of Pentecost where he pours his spirit out on them. Instead, we're seeing the days leading up to Pentecost. Today, we're going to learn about 10 days before Pentecost. What did they do? What was it that happened? And what can we learn from it that can help us as many are still waiting on God to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And I would say this to every single person that all of us should be saying, this would be my prayer for me. Lord, I want all that you have for me. I want a greater baptism in your spirit. I want to be clothed with power like I've never been clothed with power. I want to see you work in me and through me like you never have before. That should be the prayer of every single follower of Christ. 
And in Acts chapter 1 and verses 12 through 14, we learn four things that were a part of their response to Jesus' instruction to wait and to receive that, that infilling, that spirit coming upon, that clothing with power uh, that the Bible talks about. Let's pick it up, beginning in Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem. That's the disciples. Remember, they're up on the Mount of Olives. Jesus ascends into heaven. The angels say he's coming back in the same way that they had seen him go. They returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they'd entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. So these are the uh, 11 disciples minus Judas Iscariot. All of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now I want you to notice as we look at these verses, there are four things that I think are instructive for us as we wait on the Lord to do in us what we desperately need him to do. To do in us what some have never experienced him doing before. My concern is that there are some that would say, well, you know, I asked them to do it, nothing happened, so, so probably nothing will. Or, you know what, if God wants to do it, he'll do it. Which is certainly not the truth. Don't ever make the mistake of thinking that God just does what he wants, whether you and I participate or not. That's exactly what the enemy wants you to think. That's exactly the way to experience less of God's working and his power and his answers to prayer in your life. As we look at this, I want you to notice four things. First of all, they prayed compliantly. They prayed compliantly. Remember Luke, the Gospel of Luke, the author of Luke, this Gospel, a man by the name, ironically, of Luke, he wrote Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, he writes this, Jesus said, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. I want you to know this. Notice, stay until... Wait until, seek until. Just because you haven't yet received the infilling of the Holy Spirit, just because you haven't yet been empowered, doesn't mean it's not God's will to empower you. If the apostles waited for 10 days, if they stayed until it happened, how much more should you and I be willing to wait, to stay, to tarry until God does what we desperately need him to do? They stayed. They obeyed. He told them to wait. They waited until. Look at it in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4. On one occasion while he was eating with them, that's Jesus, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised. 
God wants us to wait on him. He wants to seek him until we receive what he has promised to us. And it's for everyone. Peter will say that when he talks about it in Acts chapter 2. He'll say, this gift is for everyone and for all those who are far off. In fact, no one is excluded. Everybody can be filled with God's power. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, he'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, he said, you'll receive power, that dunamis, that dynamite, that miracle working power. You'll receive it when the Holy Spirit comes on you. At salvation, the Holy Spirit begins to live inside you. But there's a second work of the Spirit where he comes upon you. As one man said, he is in me for my sake. He is upon me for your sake. He is in me to make me like Jesus. He is in me to strengthen me. He is in me to guide me. He is in me to direct me. He comes upon me that I might minister in his power to people around me. And every one of us needs that. We need him in us. That happens at salvation so that he can teach us, so that he can guide us, so that he can lead us. We need him upon us so we can pray with power for people, so that we can have a power to lay hands on people, a power to witness to people, a power to see him use us. So those were the directions. Wait till you receive power. Then they returned to Jerusalem. They complied with his direction. They said, we're going to wait in Jerusalem. Listen, a key to receiving from God in any area of our life is to obey God. A lot of Christians never receive from God in prayer. They don't experience the joy of answered prayer because they're not obedient to what they know God is calling them to do. Now I want you to think about it with the disciples. They have every reason not to stay. Sure, Jesus has told them to stay. But Peter could say, you know what? None of us are from the area of Jerusalem. In fact, of the 12 disciples, only one was from the area of Judea, where Jerusalem was located, and that was Judas Iscariot. The rest of them were from Galilee. Peter could have said, listen, we all have families. We all have homes. We all have businesses we can go back to. Let's wait there. We'll be provided for financially. We'll have a place we can stay. We'll be among friends. We'll be among family. Let's go back to Galilee. John could have said this, one of the other disciples, he could have said, you know what? They arrested Jesus, they tried Jesus, they condemned Jesus, they executed Jesus. What if they do that to us? We need to get out of here. We shouldn't stay here. It's a dangerous thing to do that, to be here. Instead, they're obedient. They returned to Jerusalem and they waited on the Lord to do what he promised to do. I just want to ask you, when you hear about this, this waiting on the Lord, when you think about receiving this baptism of the Holy Spirit, are you committed enough to say, you know what, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait on God. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask until I receive. I'm going to seek until it happens. I'm going to knock until that door is open in my life. I'm not going to worry about the time frame. I'm not going to try to come up with a new plan. I'm going to believe God's going to do it, and I'm going to wait on him until I am filled. That's the kind of obedience and prayer that God honors. Number two, I want you to notice they pray compatibly. Look at it in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Which tells us this, that when Jesus ascended, you know, he's on this mount. Let me just show you a couple pictures here. This will help you. So there's, there's a modern day picture of the Mount of Olives. And uh, there's uh, a chapel, the Chapel of All Nations right there. And, and the Mount of Olives is less a mountain than it is a ridge that's on the east side of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's over here. You have the Kidron Valley here. You have the Garden of Gethsemane over in here. And the Mount of Olives is up there. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 50, uh, it says, When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, Bethany's two miles east of Jerusalem, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken into heaven. So there you get an idea. There's, there is the Temple Mount. There's the Dome of the Rock. There's the Kidron Valley. There is uh, the Mount of Olives, that ridge. And you can see how it goes on back. And back over in here is Bethany. So somewhere in here, Jesus comes out of the village of Bethany. He goes to the Mount of Olives and he blesses them and he ascends. The disciples then will go from here down and they'll go around this side and they'll go up into the city of Jerusalem and the um, over here would be where the upper room is. So he ascends, Acts chapter one, verse 12 again, and they go back to Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Now, I mean, not, not that this has a lot to do, but I find it interesting. So if you don't find details interesting, you'll be like, oh, why does he take his time? If you do, then you're like, I've always wondered. So a Sabbath day journey um, goes back to the time when Moses was leading the nation of Israel. And if you are familiar with the Old Testament, they had the tabernacle in the center of the camp, and then the 12 tribes surrounded the camp. And so on the Sabbath, they would need to be able to walk to the tabernacle for worship. And so from the farthest edge of the camp, it would be three quarters of a mile. And so they said, that's a Sabbath day journey. You can walk far enough to get to the tabernacle, but you can't go any further. And so it's about three quarters of a mile. And that came to be a, a phrase that they used. It was called a Sabbath day walk. So they're going from the Mount of Olives, they're going into the city of Jerusalem. When they get there, they go to the upper room. We read this in verse 13. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. So they go up, their houses in that day would, would commonly have uh, two levels if, they, if somebody was wealthy. And this home had an upper room. Uh, we've been there. Uh, if you go on the Holy Land tour, you, you see what, what they believe is, is that uh, place. Large enough to hold 120 people, which tells us the owner of the place was probably very wealthy. And it was in that room that they waited on the Lord. It may also be in that room that they had the Last Supper, probably was. Verse 13 tells us this. They went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, 
Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, he's also known as James the Less, Matthew's also known as Levi, uh, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. That's not uh, Judas Iscariot, it's Judas, uh, also known as Thaddeus in some listings. So people could have, just like Matthew, Levi, or Simon, Peter, people could have uh, more than one name by which they were known. So you've got the 11 disciples there. And then we, we read this in verse 14, and all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. So it's the disciples. There is a group of women. It is very likely the same group that followed Jesus throughout his ministry. Luke mentions them in Luke chapter 8, verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, it may also be that she too was demonized because it says some of them he had cured of demons. So we can assume on this list that, that others may have had that same uh, situation. Susanna and many others, these women were helping to support them out of their own means. So there are some wealthy women who are helping underwrite the ministry of Jesus. When he's crucified on the cross, in Mark chapter 15, we read some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Younger and Joseph. So James the Younger, James the Less. He's also James the son of Alphaeus, as we read in Acts chapter 1. So she's there. And Salome, who is Mary, the mother of Jesus' sister. And in Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. So they helped support the ministry. So they're in the upper room. So you have the, you have the 11 disciples. You have this group who has followed him from the beginning. You have Jesus' brothers. He had brothers. Look at it in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. And his brothers. Jesus had earthly brothers. They would be half-brothers because while they shared the same mother, Mary, they did not have the same father. Jesus' half-brothers were the sons of Joseph while Jesus was the son of our heavenly father. He was the son of God. Their names are listed in Matthew chapter 13. Their names were James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. James, the brother of our Lord, wrote the book of James. And it's interesting to have them there because in John 7 verse 5, it says that even his own brothers did not believe in him. But here they are at a prayer meeting 40 days after he's resurrected. You say, well, how did they get Converted. The Bible doesn't give a lot of detail, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 7, it says, talking about the resurrection appearances of Jesus, then he, that's Jesus, appeared to James. So when he's resurrected, before he ever appears to the apostles on that first Sunday night, he's going to James and he's saying, hey, James, 
I am who I said I was, and James believes. Now, the point of this is simply to say this. You have Jesus' brothers, you have this group of women, you have the disciples, and you have other followers of Jesus because we know there were 120 people. What you have happening in that group is you have all of them devoted to Jesus, but think about this, all of them having had different experiences with Jesus. All of them having different levels of spiritual maturity in their walk with Jesus. So you have like James, the brother of our Lord, who eventually becomes the leader of the early church. You see that in Acts 15. But you have James, and James hasn't believed in him the whole time until after Jesus is resurrected. So he's a newbie. He hasn't been around it very long. You have Jesus' mother who knows him better than anybody. You have among the disciples, you have, you have the disciple Jesus loved, John. And so John has a relationship with Jesus that is different. Then you have Peter. Jesus could never get away from Peter. So he and Peter are very, very close. So you have all of these different people who have different experiences with him and they would all have different perceptions of things, memories of things. What I want you to notice in verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. The word there for one accord is, is the word homothumadon in the Greek. Homo meaning the same, thumadon meaning thermometer. So in other words, they have the same temperature. They have the same spiritual passion. There was a compatibility. It says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They're not only together geographically, but more important, they are together spiritually. Do they have different views on things? Unquestionably. Simon is a zealot. That means he's one of the guys, he's from a group of people who are known as assassins. You can be sure when they first met him, they slept with one eye open. I mean, this is a, this is a group that is diverse in some ways, and yet they have the same spiritual passion. They're together, not just physically, spiritually. Now, let me just say this. This is a key to any church experiencing a move of God. In fact, if people would ask me, what do you think has sustained the move of God now over 30 years at James River? I would say this in one word, unity. Unity. If we don't have unity, we don't have anything. So from the beginning, James River's been united. We've had one passion. We've had one spiritual temperature. We've had a like-mindedness. Let me say this, because I think this is really important. You don't have to have the same family background or share the same political perspective or see every issue the same you just have to have the same spiritual passion. And what we have to do, and this is what's difficult, only the Spirit of God can do this, we have to be willing to let love cover our different perspectives. 
We need to let love, let me put it this way, cover our different preferences. We need to let love cover our different political views. We need to let love cover our different pandemic views. So some are anti-vax, some are pro-vax, some are in the middle, they're not, they're not really sure. Listen, the big thing is we love one another. The big thing is we're kind toward one another. The big thing is we're not criticizing one another. The big thing is we recognize we're not going to let the petty things of this world interrupt our spiritual passion and our focus on what God has. And that requires us praying. People will never share the same heart till they pray together. You know, used to be in the early days or several years ago with the church as the church was growing, we had more and more pastors, but I realized it was, it was very difficult to keep everybody on the same page and everybody thinking alike. And until we started having our monthly pastor's prayer time, we, we have it to pray for you to be sure, but I can tell you there's a bigger reason why we do it. Because we'll never share the same heart till we spend time together in prayer. And as soon as we began to pray together, unity began to strengthen in that group of people. Listen, when the church prays together, this is why the prayer meeting is so important, because when we pray together, it creates a homothumadon. It creates the same passion. It creates the same spiritual temperature. And you have to have that for a move of God. This is why if you look at any of the great revivals in the history of the world, any of the great awakenings, what happened is a group of people got together and they prayed together and they prayed together and they prayed together until they began to express the same spiritual passion. And when they began to have the same spiritual passion, that resulted in an anointing and an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that led to a revival. Always that's how that works. Listen, I would plead with you, put aside your preferences. You may not like the color of the carpet. You may not like the temperature. You may not like the sound. You may not like that we don't have everybody getting a shot or we had some people, we, we made it possible for some to get the shot. You may not like that I don't speak up for this candidate or that we introduce this candidate, which by the way, candidates of national offices show up, we introduce them. I'm just saying, you may not like some of the things. There may be things where you would say, I wish John would wear a suit. And others of you are thinking, I wish he'd wear shorts and flip-flops. <laughs> Listen, we all have preferences. But we need to be more committed to being spiritually passionate about what God has called us as a church to do and love, love the diversity of opinion and be careful that we're not critical. Because if we become critical of people within the church, I would just ask you, as you're in life groups and somebody says something negative about somebody or in the church, the quickest way to stop it in a kind way is to say something positive. You don't even have to say, I don't agree. Say, well, you know what? They are the nicest people. 
Or you know what? I just think, you know, you can say it a thousand ways. Or wasn't God good today? God moved in the church. Just talk about the good things. Celebrate what God is doing. Because if we don't maintain unity in the church, we lose everything God would have done. Psalm 133, a favorite psalm. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head. What's that talking about? The anointing of the Holy Spirit coming upon Aaron, the high priest, when Moses anointed him to be the spiritual leader of the people of Israel. When you and I dwell in unity, when you and I live together in unity, when you and I commit, that's not unanimity. Doesn't mean we all have to think, think alike on everything. It's not uniformity. It doesn't mean we all have to dress alike. You want to wear shorts and flip-flops? Do it. You want to wear a suit and tie? Do it. I mean, it's the idea of you and I saying we're going to have the same spiritual passion regarding the Lord, regarding reaching people, regarding the priorities of the church. And when you have that, it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. There you have, when you have unity, God commands blessing. The reason why James River is where it is today is because God has given us unity, and you as a people, and I commend you for this, and I thank you for this, you have made a commitment to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, and you're seeing the result of it. All of us are as we walk in unity. Amen? So one of the things that happens in the upper room is the diversity of the people is united in a spiritual passion that allows the Spirit of God to move. This is absolutely critical to seeing any kind, forget the idea of seeing any revival unless we have that. And we all know we desperately need it, right? I'm not talking about, hey, I'll take more of God in the church any day of the week. But when you look at our community, when you look at Southwest Missouri, when you read, hey, I, I know there's a lot of debate over the crime statistics. But if you read the recent ones, Springfield's the fifth most violent city in the nation. Number five, we went from 11 to five. In Missouri, the odds of being a victim of violent crime in the state are about four and a half per thousand. In Springfield, it's 15.9 per thousand. Now don't tell me how many churches we have. Don't tell me how religious we are. Don't tell me how, how it's the Bible Belt. Forget that. There's nothing about our experience related to crime, related to poverty, re re related to domestic violence that speaks of Bible Belt. It's a sham to say that. It's a shame to say that. If that's what the Bible Belt is, that's tragic. If ever there was a place that's in need of revival, you'd have to say it's one of the most violent places in the United States. If ever there's a place that was in need of revival, you'd have to say it's a place where poverty is rampant. Where if ever there was a place that's in need of revival, you'd have to say it's where a place where domestic abuse and, and children being removed from the homes to protect them. You'd have to say it's a city like that. This area desperately needs revival. I love the area, but it's got to have revival. Oh. 
This is why the prayer meeting is so important. You're never going to change. Hey, I'm all for voting. I understand in a democratic society or a Republican form of government, we have the opportunity to vote and select representatives who do business for us, and we should vote for the godliest, most capable people that we can find to serve in public office. I'm for that. But you'll never change a society with that. Ever. Politics cannot change the hearts of people. It's a fool's errand. Only God can change people's hearts, and we desperately need another great awakening to sweep this country. And may it start here. May it start here and cover the country and the globe. Well, you can tell I'm very passionate about this. The more I pray, the more passionate I get about it. The more convinced I am that this is the will of God. Well, number three, they prayed constantly. I love this. Look at it. Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. They're devoting themselves. In the, in the original, the word in the Greek could be they prayed full time. They, they didn't stop. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, they devoted themselves to prayer. In Acts chapter 3, one day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. And when they heard this, Acts chapter 4 verse 24, they raised their voices together in prayer. Literally, as you read the book of Acts, you find there are praying, 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 praying people. The church was born in prayer. The church faces problems with prayer. They devote themselves to prayer. This again, is, this again is why prayer is so absolutely critical. It's foundational. Some of you are new to the church. You're newer, and, and you hear us talk about the prayer meeting, and, and some may wonder, why do, you, why do you make such a big deal about the prayer meeting? This is it. Because without the prayer meeting, we're a club. Without the prayer meeting, we... All we experience is the best we can do, and that's not enough to meet the needs of people spiritually. The best I can do is not enough to change somebody's life. The best I can do will never transform people. The best I can do will never create a spiritual revival. Samuel Chadwick, the Methodist minister, said this on the way to Pentecost. The church that multiplies committees and neglects prayer may be fussy, noisy, enterprising, but it labors in vain and it spends its strength for naught. It is possible to excel in mechanics and fail in dynamics. There's an abundance of machinery. What is lacking is power. When we pray, it changes. I mean, it just changes everything. If I were to show you on a graph what happened when we started praying in January 1998, exponentially, exponentially, salvations, baptisms, Holy Spirit baptisms, numerical growth, all of it happened after the prayer meeting. I looked around Wednesday night. I saw this place. Visually, it looked full. There's still room for more. Don't worry. We got a seat for you. But when I watched it and I saw people with their hands lifted up and I, and I saw what God was doing in, in the lives of people, 
That's the answer that will change everything. It will change everything in your life. It will change everything in your marriage. It will change everything in your home. It will change everything in the church. We're setting the table. We're setting the atmosphere for what God did this morning, what God will do this coming week. Prayer changes everything. I remember when we started the prayer meeting, going to Brooklyn Tabernacle and preaching at Brooklyn Tabernacle, spending time with Pastor Semble, and he said, he said this statement, and I never forgot it. He said, John, when a church begins to pray, what happens is there's an accumulating weight of grace. Grace begins to build. What is grace? It's God's favor. What is grace? It's God's power. What is grace? It's, it's the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon a place that causes things that are supernatural to happen. It moves you from the ordinary to the extraordinary. He said there's an accumulating weight of grace that eventually it's like it begins to build up to the point it begins to breach the dam. It begins to spend until finally it's a mighty river pouring out of a reservoir as people have prayed God has poured in and now it, it's released and you see divine favor. And I'm telling you that is exactly what is happening at James River over the last 20 plus years since we did the prayer meeting. There's been an accumulating weight of grace and the best is yet to come. You can see it. You can watch what God is doing as you and I pray. I'm, I'm just telling you, we haven't seen anything yet. Number four, they prayed confidently. And this is implied. It says when the day of Pentecost came, that means 10 days had passed. So they're in the upper room and, and they're praying. Why did they wait 10 days? Why were they still praying when it seemed nothing had happened after nine days? Because they were confident. Jesus said, wait. And when you wait, something supernaturally dynamic is going to happen. So when you wait, I'm going to visit you. I'm going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. I'm going to pour my spirit out on you. It's going to transform you. You're going to be clothed in power. But wait. So they waited. And they waited. And they waited. It's a valuable lesson for us. It's not only the confidence of prayer, it's the patience of prayer. To say, I'm going to wait, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray. Talking about the Holy Spirit, we looked at it a few weeks ago on a Wednesday night. Jesus said, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it'll be opened unto you. Then he says this, for whoever asks, they keep on asking, they receive. Whoever knocks, they keep on knocking. The door is opened. Whoever seeks and keeps on seeking, they're going to find. Listen, all I'm saying to you is this. There's an empowerment of the Holy Spirit that is available to everybody in this room. And I would suggest to you that you ask and ask and ask and ask and ask and ask. Seek and seek and seek and seek. Knock and knock and knock and knock until it's there in your life. Right. I have people at times say, is there anything that would help me? I say, yeah. I mean, get in the Word of God. Read the book of Acts. Be inspired by Scripture. Grab a book. There's some good books on being filled with the Spirit that are, that are great, that will encourage your faith. But pray. Nothing will replace 
make it the cry of your heart. He told them in a few days, and they're there praying, believing God, and God met them. I can't wait till we get to Acts 2-4. It is, it is, I think, more dynamic than people really realize, more powerful. And I just believe God has more for everybody in this room, starting with me. I don't think I have it all. And I don't have all, the, all that God wants to do in my life, and I'm praying, Lord, every day I'm praying, Lord, give me a greater, a greater anointing and a greater experience of your Spirit. Lord, give me a greater baptism in the Spirit. Let me know more of your power, more of your working, more of your presence, more of what you want to do in me, through me, so that, so that I, when it's all said and done, I can say, you know what? I didn't leave anything on the table. I didn't, I didn't miss out on what might have been. And especially because I just want to see revival in the area. We desperately need it. Prayer is the only way to get it. And if we'll pray, God will do it. And if we'll pray, you'll experience the power of God in dimensions that you never imagined. I know you want that. It happens as we pray.